We've passed the halfway point of the feast. We've had beautiful weather. We've had good fellowship. We've had educational messages and, and uh, enjoyed how Mr. Pate calculated where we would be in the millennium if we look at our week as an overlay. And then Mr. Dawson's calculations again. And as he talked about, uh, we would be in the year 798 if our week would be compared to those 1,000 years today. Let's go to Zechariah chapter 8. Zechariah chapter 8. And we read verse 4. This is a picture of the millennium, as Mr. Dawson was talking about earlier. I'm going to follow up on the theme that he really has continued, and in particular mentioning Mr. Pate's calculations, and then transposing them to today. And here's a picture of that time, Zechariah chapter 8, verse 4. We read, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand because of great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Old men and old women, old and not old children, but just children. By this time, this will be a, a picture that will be prevalent in our cities. There will be old men and women, generations of children, as I think even Mr. Donson mentioned in the, in, in the sermonette, generations of children will have been born by 798 ACR. There'll be happy families, happy people, and successful nations. At this point in the millennium, we'll be right in the middle of fulfilling the purpose of this Sabbath rest, this millennial Sabbath rest. But what is the ultimate purpose? And I, I use that term very specifically. What is the ultimate purpose of this millennial Sabbath rest? What is God's goal for mankind? Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4. And we read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. You know, I'm sorry, I keep thinking of, uh, get of Mr. Rodberg. You know, when you see somebody, somebody who is aged and, and even who, ha, who has died, and you, you see what's left of their, of, their, of their body, you're not looking at the real person. You're looking at in a sense, the, an end, but yet their, their life is, is so much more. It's so full. Have you ever noticed when you meet somebody who is elderly and you begin talking with them and you hear the experiences of their, of their life and you realize, wow, there's so much more to this person. There's, I, I remember, um, one time in Louisiana, we was talking with a lady who was uh, a, a new member, a prospective member and was sitting with her, an elderly lady. She was on oxygen, and and um, she was quite sickly. Uh, she was sitting in her chair as we were sitting in the living room. My wife and I were visiting with her and talking. And as we talk with her, you know, you start asking about, well, well, you know, where did you grow up? And and as we begin to talk with her, it turns out that she was the lady who used to, well, when she was 16 anyway, she wore a bikini in a traveling circus and was the target for the knife thrower, except, you know, to have to miss her with the knife around. And I'm trying to imagine her in my mind as I look at this lady. Nothing would ever in any way, shape, or form from what I can see and looking at her would put in my mind a 16-year-old girl in a bikini with having knives thrown around her at a, you know, a, a carny show, which is what she described. She laughed. She said, yeah, I, you know, I ran away and I was, I was, I was doing this. And I'm thinking, wow, that's amazing. I just never would have thought. But, you know, that was part of her life. And we would never have talked about it. I would have never realized that, <laughs> that crazy part of her life and everything else that was in between. And, and so all of the things that we are, all the things that we, people we, we know and their experiences and everything about them, 
That's, that's all been part of what's them. But when they're asleep, they're resting. So they can be able to have a, a life that goes beyond that in more interesting and exciting ways. But at this point, they're waiting. They're sleeping. Verse 15, we, this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. It says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. They'll be alive again and in all their vibrancy, not in their struggles and suffering and sickness and weakness. He says, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So we read of this time when all of us people, those who sleep in the ground, whose lives have slowed and sometimes deteriorated, the time will come when they will be, we will be alive as as never before. But is this moment, is that moment the, the end goal, the end line, for God. No, it's not. You see, Christ's return is not the end of human civilization. It marks the beginning of mankind's millennial Sabbath day or Sabbath rest. Hebrews chapter 4 makes that very clear. Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, verse 1, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, talking about ancient Israel, who had a symbolic rest when they entered the promised land. But he uses that and the Sabbath to picture the ultimate reality. He says, For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he said. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. And then he goes on to talk about verse 9, ultimately he says, For there remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. So we have a certain, every Sabbath, we have a certain rest that we enjoy that pictures, or actually was pictured by the, the Sabbath day and goes all the way back to creation, but yet it pictures something far beyond in the future, so we look forward to this millennial, you might say, macro-Sabbath, if you want to use that term, because that's what the millennium will be, a, a, a macro-Sabbath, a thousand years of a Sabbath, the keeping of, you might say, the weekly Sabbath on a broader palette of history. You know, the first day or the first thousand years of human civilization, you might say Sunday if you want to use the parallel there, It was a day when Satan tempted and tainted mankind. And that way of thinking then pervaded the next 5,000 years, has pervaded the next 5,000 years of humankind's week. But the thousand-year Sabbath day is a time when mankind will honor God, will remember God, will commune with God, will fellowship and assemble with others of like mind, and will focus on God as creator, all those things the Sabbath was intended to teach. And God will teach then the whole world as he does us on the weekly Sabbath. But that's not an end of itself. What is the purpose of a rest? What's the purpose of our weekly rest? What will be the purpose then, if you want to take the corollary then, what will be the purpose of this millennial Sabbath rest that we're pointing to today. So I'm going to give you the answer to the question, but I'm going to do it by painting you, or continuing really to paint the picture that has been painted of what this world will look like halfway through the millennium. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 11, get a running start, and we'll pick up some of the themes, the threads that have been laid out here. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 11. It shall come to pass... 
in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left. Some of these verses have been read. Let's read them again. From Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea, he will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Verse 6, verse uh, 13, also the envy of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim, but they shall fly down upon the shoulder of the Philistines toward the west. Together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall lay their hand on Edom and Moab, and the people of Ammon shall obey them. So it will be a time when other nations will not trample them underfoot. We're, we're approaching that time today. Where, where God removes his hand of blessing and protection, and we become trampled under the, under the feet of our enemies. Prophetically, that's what's going to happen. But he says that time will be overturned, things will change, and Israel will, will again take the lead, physically speaking, in a world that is to come. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the Sea of Egypt. With his mighty wind, he will shake his fist over the river. That would be the Euphrates. He says, and strike it in the seven streams and make men cross over dry shod. And then verse 16, there will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria as it was for Israel in the day that he came up from the land of Egypt. This has never happened. Those who would say that what we teach about the prophecies of Israel in the future are nonsense cannot explain this scripture because this has never happened. It's compared here to coming out of Egypt, and yet this is very much future and can't be explained any other way. So we read of a return to Israel for the captives, but what will they do? What will they learn? What will they learn? Well, we'll talk about that during the main part of the sermon then under the heading, The System. The System. So you want to type in your notes. I'll write in your notes. Um, the system, we'll describe it a bit. Isaiah chapter 33. Isaiah 33. If you'd like to put a, a title on the sermon, my working title is Halfway Home. Halfway Home. A little bit better than halfway, but... I think halfway will will work for our purposes. Isaiah chapter 33, we read verse 5, The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. It says, He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. Wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times and the strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. How, How modern a need is that? Wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times. We really need wisdom and knowledge and stability, don't we, today? Stability is what we're lacking governmentally, politically, economically. If you watched the debates last night, I think that's driven home. I watched a good part of them, and there's no wisdom and knowledge and stability. There are opinions, there are ideas, and facts, war against facts, war against opinions, to the point where it's mixed up. And we don't live in a stable nation, do we? Instability. If you could put one term that describe, would describe our, our nation, would it not be instability? But here we find the millennium is characterized, we see here, Zion will be filled with justice and righteousness. Wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times. What knowledge will give us stability? What knowledge will comprise that system? Let's continue to look at some of the nuts and bolts as we have up to this time, but we'll add to that. Let's go to, uh, ex- let's go to Exodus chapter 16. As, you, as you're going, uh, going to give you a point here. One of the, the first characteristic of wisdom and knowledge that will give that stability. I've termed the economics of faith. The economics of faith. Now, let's compare. In man's economic system, what we have is scarcity of resources plus unlimited needs of consumers 
equals never enough, price wars, and capitalism as a whole. Okay? Now, let me, let me give you an example of, of what I mean. Do you remember about, what, was it uh, six or seven months ago when toilet paper prices went through the roof? I was just looking for some, I was trying to remind myself of how much toilet paper or hand sanitizer was going for last spring. And I, I looked it up. Here's a, here was a, a note from one article. One store advertised hand sanitizer at $60 a bottle. Another was accused of hawking it at $1 a squirt. Chain stores offered $26 thermometers and face masks at the everyday low price of $39.95 a pair, while a convenience store touted toilet paper at $10 a roll next to a sign reading, This is not a joke. So, in a nutshell, this is how our system works today. Goods are chased by dollars, are chased by money, right? Money is chasing goods, and that dictates price. And so, again, I'll, I'll, I'll lay out the equation one more time. because Please note it, because we're going to compare it with God's equation. In man's economic system, scarcity of resources, how much is available, plus unlimited needs of consumers, equals never enough price wars, the capitalism as a whole. Okay? Now, let's go to Exodus chapter 16, because in Exodus 16, we, realize, we see the, the contrasting principle, fundamental equation in, in God's economic system. Exodus 16, 16 and verse 1, we read, And they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And they complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, where everything was good. I'm just summarizing, okay? So we come down to verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So what was happening here was God was teaching them the Sabbath, but he was also teaching them his fundamental economic principle, which is assumption of prosperity, okay? In other words... Uh, that is that happens by assumption of prosperity happens by okay, number one human faithfulness and effort that's that's the first part of the equation human faithfulness and effort plus God's involvement equals more than human needs an abundance of human needs more than we can use that's that assumption of prosperity I'm talking about. In other words, it's an assumption of prosperity, not an expectation of scarcity. Expectation of scarcity is what drives our system, drives prices. That's why farmers, you expect a high price for a bushel of wheat. What do you do? You plant more, right? The more you plant, the less you get money-wise. Because everybody's planting more now. And And so our system is based on supply and demand. We think, oh, that's perfect. And yet, is it perfect as our as our system Provided prosperity for everyone? No, but we we almost can't even see any other way because we say, well, supply and demand isn't that isn't that just normal? But but look what we find when we come to Exodus 16 because this is not based on supply and demand. What what are the prin- major principles that go into it? Let's look really quick here, just shortly. We see verse four: Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day. Again, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. So we see how God was going to deliver manna to them. And let's jump down a little bit here to verse 14. We see, or yes, verse 14, When the layer of dew lifted then, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. We find the perfect system of just-in-time delivery here. It provided them what they needed for the day. Because what happened if they tried to go out and store more? He says, Let every man gather it, according, verses, verse 16, 
According to each one's need, one omer for each person, according to the number of persons. Let every man take for those who are in his tent. So, certainly, human faithfulness, they had to obey and go out and do it, and they had to work. It's like we're hearing about in the sermonette. Work is required, but work enough for them themselves, their family, and others certainly in need they could share. But it says, verse 18... When they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered according to one's needs. And Moses said, Let no one leave any of it until the morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, but many of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry at them. So what we find is they had to rely then, get this, they were forced to rely on God's providence each and every day, weren't they? Well, that's an interesting concept, isn't it? And even as you go down through the, the chapter here, the account, even when it came to the Sabbath, then he said to them, verse 22, rather verse, yes, verse 22, uh, it was, so it was in the sixth day they, that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one, and all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses, And he said to them, well, this is what the Lord has said to do. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today and boil what you will boil and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until tomorrow. Verse 25, eat that today, says, well, verse 24, read it. So they laid up until the morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. Then Moses said, eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. It's happened that some of the people who went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? And he, he describes what he's talking about there. So the point is, we see that with God, it requires us to have faith in him, and he'll give us what we need. Don't we find that with the, keeping the Sabbath and the holy days? Because don't people say, how can you possibly, how can you possibly earn enough only working six days and taking the Sabbath off? How many people have you heard say that? Perhaps when you first started keeping the Sabbath, the holy days, people said, and I, I find, you know, bump into this so typically with newer people who are becoming familiar with the church, and then you talk about the Sabbath, and they say, well, I work on, on Saturdays, and you describe, look, Understand, but if you, if you'll go ahead and speak with your boss and work it out so you can, you can be able to, uh, to not work on the Sabbath day and obey God, you'll be okay. God will bless you. He'll take care of you. Oh, it, 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 I don't know how I can do it. It won't happen. And yet it does. Exactly like it happened right here. In other words, they gathered what they needed and it supplied all their needs, even the Sabbath day, just like we were hearing about in the sermonette with the year, the, the seventh year. So God's system, I'll say it again, and this is the first principle of the nuts and bolts of God's system, the economics of faith. Man's economic system versus God's. God's economic system, I'll say it again, human faithfulness and effort plus God's involvement equals an ex- exceeding of human productivity. And that comes through so many ways. It comes through the blessing of rain in due season and so on as we read. Okay, Numbers chapter 26, second principle in this system that is being taught during the millennium. <clears throat> you and I will be responsible to, to teach and explain and help to implement and, and coach people in doing Because we will have to help them to believe that they can't go out the next day or they can't, they cannot hoard so they can be able to maybe get a better price on the Sabbath because God's not delivering or whatever. All kinds of ideas of, of trying to circumvent what God has said to do. No, no. We'll have to coach them into doing it the way that God said and how that applies. Okay. Numbers 26. I'm just going to go ahead and give you the, the principle here, and that is the economics of land as capital. The economics of land as capital. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Numbers 26 and verse 52. Israel was taught a principle here. 
excuse me, Numbers 26, verse 52, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, To these the land shall be divided as an inheritance, according to the number of names. To a large tribe you shall give a larger inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a smaller inheritance. Each shall be given its inheritance according to those who are numbered of them. But the land shall be divided by lot. They shall inherit according to the names of the tribes of their fathers. According to the lot, their inheritance shall be divided between the larger and the smaller. And so we go through this description of the the division of the land with the fundamental underpinning principle that the land belongs to God who then can give as he wishes. In other words, he placed it into the care of families as a heritage. Not a land rush, you know, not the Oklahoma land rush where uh, somebody shoots a gun and thousands of people in buckboards and on horses race across the land to try to stake their claim and then fight other people off so they won't take their claim and then somebody comes along and steals it. No, land will be given by God who owns the land as a heritage. Not every man for himself, not to accumulate as much as possible. But God gives some specifics as to exactly how this works and how it's to be cared for. We learned about some of those specifics a moment ago with the seventh year sabbatical year. Uh, Mr. Dawson mentioned Leviticus where we read about sowing your land for six years and pruning your, and, and so on and so forth. Leviticus 25, verses 3 and 4, if you want to jot it for our purposes down. The seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest unto the land. So there's, there's a principle that is required of, of, of working the land. Not, a, a, not a, a bypass where we pour on the NPK and try to get as much growth as we can and try to increase the yield so that we can be able to get more and then we're back into man's system. No. Instead, the principle God gives as the owner is to institute a, a, a land rest. But that's not all the seven-year sabbatical does. Deuteronomy chapter 15. Deuteronomy chapter 15. And that's why it's, not, it's both agricultural and economic. Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 1. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debt. And this is the form of the release. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it. He shall not require it of his neighbor or his brother because it is called the Lord's release. Now, this is only a a small number of words, but can you imagine what this would do to our nation if this were implemented? Because our system is built on debt, credit, interest, uh, our whole system is built in a, such a way that this would destroy it, wouldn't it? But yet, it's God's system. And it's what's going to be implemented. And, and think about how it changes your mindset when you loan money, if you have, with the understanding that it will be forgiven at a certain point in time in the future. Changes everything, doesn't it? It changes everything. Now, we can see verse 3, Of a foreigner you may require it, but you shall give up your claim to what is owed by your brother. Well, this is understandable, isn't it? Why, why is that? Because God was not going to allow foreigners to take advantage of the Israelites to come in and borrow money. This is the way that people were to treat each other and help each, each other. So we see that the seventh year sabbatical year is is part of an economic system. Leviticus 25. Let's go back to Leviticus 25 at another layer. Leviticus 25, and I believe this was mentioned earlier in the feast. Leviticus 25, we read about about the, the Jubilee year. It says, verse 10, you shall Consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each one of you shall return to his possession. That's a key, because when the, the word that is described here is possession, it has to do with um, 
his ancestral heritage, I think is another translation of it. His ancestral heritage. And that phrase in Hebrew, if I understand it correctly, comes from a root meaning to grasp, to hold on to. Now, what a blessing to have a generational home where, as they say, trees are not planted for your children, they're planted for your grandchildren. One of the things with our Industrial Revolution that we are losing more and more is ancestral homes. Today, if you live in a home that your parents built or your parents lived in, it's, it's quite an anomaly. But years gone by, for much of history, frankly, property was... And again, depending, but it was more the norm before the Industrial Revolution for property to be held on for generations. So when you planted a tree, you know, your grandchildren would benefit. It's one of the things that I, I frankly, I, you know, I wish sometimes, I wish we could do as our, our family. And I, growing up, we grew up in, in Wisconsin, primarily in Germantown, Wisconsin, and we planted we planted trees because my parents believed that you do it, you plant fruit trees, you do these things, even if you're not able to benefit, somebody else will. And, and it was just part of what we did. And I have to say, it, it's, it's, um, it's, a real, it's really pleasing to go back now, years later, and see those trees grown up and to know that I, I helped plant those trees and somebody's benefiting from those. What, what a neat thing. But, you know, if we could, if we could be able to to go and say to our children, you know, that's where grandfather built that corner of the house or that, 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 that storage shed out of rock, out of stone. My, my dad came from North Arkansas and it was always interesting as we grew up, we had an opportunity to go back only just a couple of times, to, but to go back and see where his grandparents had homesteaded an, an area there, and had, they built a farm out of really just wilderness. And and we could drive on the dirt road around the property, and you could see the old stone house where my dad grew up in. You know, they had back in those days they had uh, air conditioning and heating just like we do today. It's just the air conditioning was in the winter, and the heating was in the summer. Just a little bit of a different uh, way it was laid out, um, but. Uh, but it was an old stone house with uh, the field stones, you know, the big field stones. They last forever. And to drive around the property and see where he grew up, the, 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 the forest that he hunted in and the fields that they worked in. But it was sold off as time went by, and now other people own it. And our, our land, we're not attached to the land. We're not attached to, to a place. We're used to, as part of our, our system after the Industrial Revolution, for labor to be like pawns on a chessboard, moved around to where the work is. That's our system that came into, into place. And we understand that we're, you know, we're strangers and pilgrims, and so we can't become attached to this world. But yet God intended for us, ultimately what he intended for mankind, was to be attached to land. And for the capital to be, I'll say, to be the land, not in in a bank somewhere, or in Bitcoin, or in, in, in virtual stocks and bonds, which at the end of the day is what? Pfft, nothing. It can be lost in a fraction of a second. Is the Jubilee year, and these things that we're reading, are the things that we're reading right here, are they necessary? Are they modern? Will they be implementable? Because we're so much more sophisticated than God, and we've you know, we've developed human systems that are much more sophisticated to handle modern life. Is this, is this not, is this modern? Is this workable? Well, let me read you some of the statistics. Where we are, what our system has done for us today. About 41 million Americans ter- carry more than 1. trillion dollars in outstanding student debt today. Here's another quote from the same article that I've taken some of these statistics from. The wealth disparity between upper and middle income Americans has hit a record high according to a new Pew Research Center report. On average, today's upper income families are almost seven times wealthier than middle income ones compared to 3.4 times wealthier in 1984. When compared to lower income family wealth, upper income family wealth is 70 times larger. 
It's come to the point where only the top 10 percent of Americans are seeing their wealth grow, according to this article, while the bottom 90 get less and less of the pie each year. The driving force of this wealth chasm are the top 0.1% who have seen their share of the nation's wealth grow the most over the past decades to 7% from 7% in 79 to 22% today. So, so let me, if you did, if you missed that, 0.1%, one tenth of our population owns 22% of the wealth of our nation. In fact, the top 0.1% are now worth more than the entire bottom 90% of the U.S. population, according to this report. The CEO-to-worker pay ratio averages 354 to 1 today. Top 1% of Americans have only 5% of the nation's personal debt. So it goes on and on and on. When you read the statistics, when you read the statistics... What we find today is a way that is so at odds with God's way that it can only produce one thing. And that one thing is something that's predicted economically by what's called the Kondratiev wave. The Kondratiev wave was a, it was an observation that was, was actually, um, made by Nikolai Kondratiev, who was a, a Soviet professor, an ec- economist, by the way, he was shot by a firing squad on the orders of Stalin in 1938 because he predicted that the American economy would recover. And so the Kondratiev wave, what it is, is that based on in, in, uh, and economically our, in our history, there have been 50-year cycles throughout history. And he tra- traces it all the way back uh, a 1,000 years earlier, back to 1495. And he, uh, he, he was able to, to chart what happens in major economies of the world, and there's, now there's a 50-year cycle. And so he was able, by looking at how these 50-year cycles, which, by the way, bottom out in a redistribution of wealth through war, sometimes through upheaval, internal upheaval, that turns countries upside down, but somehow, about every 50 years, economically, everything turns over through depression, through internal revolution, through wars, magic about every 50 years. By the way, if you look at, if you look at where we are right now and that wave that has been charted for the past 200 years, we actually should be coming out of that wave right about now. Which is interesting because you think, well, does that mean that we have more years here in America? Yet we see our economy rotting from the inside out, and we're the precipice of debt, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But yet, what we see prophetically is that there is a there is a entity that will rise to economic greatness right before the end of the, the age, isn't there? And it's not the United States; it's not Israel. But we'll see how that goes in the future. But according to this Kondratiev wave uh, economic theory of every, about every 50 years, I say theory because we, what we see in the Bible is God says, you know what, every 50 years, and by, by the way, I'm sorry for an aside, but every, there's also another book that, that you can read. It's called The Cycles of War. And it, it, it talks about how wars follow a 50-year cycle as well, major, major wars and upheavals. But that's another story. But... The point being is that somehow, I guess the creator of the universe and the creator of mankind, apparently the creator of economics as well, if we read what's in the Bible, knows that about every 50 years there needs to be some sort of a major, you might say, deflationary mechanism in a controlled way that's based on land as capital that actually allows people to not only go back to their land, but it controls the growth and expansion of wealth. It dictates how wealth functions within a people. So we have an amazing characteristic here, and we've just scratched the tip of the iceberg. When you begin to think about land as the fundamental capital of what what actually dictates economies, the implications are really enormous. But more for another day, perhaps. A third principle that the kingdom that Christ will establish in the millennium as part of the system 
I'm going to use the phrase, the economics of godly business ethics. The economics of godly business ethics. And this really turns, ties right into what Mr. Dawson was talking about earlier. Let's look at another part of that, of that piece, because it's a rather large piece. Of course, it involves uh, a, a number of different components, but I'm going to, I'm going to point you to one here that uh, you may not have noticed. Numbers chapter 35. Numbers 35. What we see here in Numbers 35 is that the Levites, quickly verses 1 through 8 here, the Levites received 48 towns, and each town was surrounded by open land, 2,000 cubits wide. And you can read about the designation of how those cities were to be established. It's a fascinating pattern that's established here with uh, wild land in the middle, pasture land, land that was used by, by everyone, um, and, and all kinds of regulations even to the size. And even that size has implications because what we see as cities grow larger, there are benefits that are accrued until a certain point. Uh, there's a book by E.F. Schumacher called Small is Beautiful back uh, you know, a few decades, couple decades, three, three decades or four ago. And he talks about the, the optimal size of cities. And, and what he finds is that when you get to a certain point, the input that's required to sustain roads and services and, and all, what happens is, is it takes more input to keep things from deteriorating than is, is worth it. And so that's why we see major cities struggling with a logistic weight to maintain themselves, taxes going up, because there is an optimal size for towns and villages and cities where you can be able to enjoy the arts. You can be able to enjoy the, enjoy the economies of scale for certain businesses. But here, and so we, some of the principles are here in Numbers 35. Um, but but uh, we'll just... I'll just draw your attention to one thing about Numbers 35, and that is that they, the Levites received this as their inheritance and no more. Okay? We flip over to Deuteronomy 21. We find something that is mentioned here. Deuteronomy 21 and verse 5. Deuteronomy 21, verse 5, uh, breaking into the thought, Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the, and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word, every controversy and every assault shall be settled. This is, this is set within the procedure for dealing with unsolved murder. But we see the Levites had a responsibility to then... Uh, uh, controversies could be escalated to their decision-making as part of their uh, responsibilities. Um, we find in Leviticus, for example, chapter 6 and verse 1, um, orders concerning property damage went to the priest. Priests were required to do the valuation of the property damage. Um, Leviticus 27, we read, the Levites were to set the weight of the shekel of the sanctuary. But the key point is the ones who were required, who were, who were tasked with the job of making these decisions in terms of not only of, of individuals and economic issues like the valuation of money, but also property rights and property disputes were those who had nothing to gain themselves from the interactions. Now that's really fundamental. Because what we see in our land, as in most times through history, is the people who end up being the decision makers in society are often the ones who have a lot to gain by those decisions. Have you noticed, boy, I hate to even talk about politics, except I'm just going to point you to some of the statistics as to how much money is paid by those who serve in our, I mean, how much, how much taxes are paid, therefore how much money is quote, earned by those in some of our higher offices. Those who rule in positions of authority in our land oftentimes benefit greatly or are in positions to benefit greatly from the decisions they render. But that was not to be part of the system as God established 
In fact, they, because their inheritance was given, they were not allowed to accumulate wealth, land, etc. They were impartial judges just by design of how they lived. So we see the Levites had a role as impartial administrators. And that type of system will also be plugged into the millennium. Okay? So economics of godly business ethics, one part of that, Levites' role or uh, in, in the millennium and, and, and applying that in the millennial setting, there will be impartial administrators. Now, I, I, you know, I hope this doesn't seem to be, oh boy, you're getting a little bit uh, picky here, because... Brethren, we need to be familiar with these godly principles. We're going to be we're going to be implementing them. And if we cannot identify flaws in our system today, and then compare, as opposed to just complain about them, compare them to what does the Bible say? What what does the Bible? What principles does the Bible give to to actually solve these problems? Then we're just we're just going with the flow, and we're we're not doing our job because we're going to have a responsibility to teach these principles in the millennium. And if we're soaked in a different way with no interest in what the Bible says, what do we teach but what we know, but what we're familiar with? If we don't know these principles, we can easily become part of the noise of opinions about even what should be done in our nation and in the world, and we just become part of one more human solution. That's based on our own experience, which is the only thing man has to use because he's denied God's revelation. And I think we've had enough of human solutions. There are other areas in terms of, uh, as I said, the economics of godly business, business ethics. I'm going to mention just uh, two or three here, and then we'll proceed. No cheating. No cheating. Leviticus 25, verses 14 and 50, specifically addresses cheating. How we handle the poor, how we handle poverty. Deuteronomy chapter 15 talks about, or what we read about that. Um, we read about gleaning the corners of the field and other principles like this in Leviticus chapter 19. We read about the third tithe, this uh, poor tithe that we read, that we read about being administered locally. Because locally, as opposed to through various levels of governmental uh, bureaucracy, if they're administered, help for those in need is administered locally, there are a lot of benefits. Those who are local know the need. They understand the need. They can help those who may not speak out for their needs, and they can also wisely manage those who may want more than what covers their needs. But this is part of the, the, uh, the principles that we read about We read about debt and lending in Deuteronomy 23. We already touched on that. But there's more in Deuteronomy 23 and Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy chapter 15 and Deuteronomy 24. So we read about debt and lending. So how all this happened? I've just sort of scratched the surface in terms of some of the economic nitty-gritty and nuts and bolts and, and how our system will function differently in terms of business ethics and so how will this all happen? Let's move to the next stage. How will this all happen? Well, I talked about this the other day. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 19. It's been, it's been touched on throughout the feast, but we read about how God will set the boundaries of nations. He will establish nations, not by war, not by fighting over who is, um, who is, is to have ownership of this peninsula or this area. No, they'll be established by God, who will establish nations and peoples in places according to his determination. And international relations, you might say, will be based on leadership of Israel with God's direction, under Jesus Christ's direction, under God, just like our U.S. dollar bill aspires to do. Isaiah chapter 19, and we've read this before, but I want to to, to point to a, verse, a couple of the verses, we read verse 18. In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear by the Lord of hosts, one will be called the city of destruction. What happens when you have a language that uh, is the, I'll, I'll use the French term, lingua franca. What happens when you have a language that is used by other countries? Well, it, it gives 
it, it gives an influence, doesn't it? And that's one of the blessings that we have in our, in our world today is English is the common language of business. Um, again, when I lived and worked in Thailand, one of the things that we did was to teach English. Why would Thai people want to know English? It's because when they dealt with Japanese businessmen, who did, what language did they speak? Not Japanese, not Thai, English. What language did they speak when they spoke with Germans? It wasn't German, and it wasn't Thai, it was English. So having a common language actually is part of establishing a common culture. And we find here that, in this case, Israel will be, will take the lead, you might say, in, in establishing culture through language and as a light to the Gentiles, as we read in Isaiah 49, will influence the world. Isaiah chapter 49. We read here verse, begin here in verse uh, 6. Well, let's go, let's just read a couple verses, verse 5 and 6. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant? to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. That will be the, 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 the function of Israel in the millennium. Uh, it will be a light to the Gentiles. Yes, Israel will be, will be taken from all nations, but ultimately... They will serve as, as that light. Now, there will always be the potential of rebellion. As the system begins to work, it becomes familiar. It becomes the, the paradigm, the, the, the way of thinking for all nations. There will always be the potential of rebellion. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 19. Isaiah chapter 19. Because as we're teaching and as we help coach and establish all the nations into the ways of God that bring peace and prosperity, it seems like the seeds of potential wrong choices are always there, even as they were there in the Garden of Eden. As long as human nature is present which really is the medium through which God builds character, right? Free moral agency is the, is the medium which, through which we build, we build character by making those good choices and living by those choices. So certainly that free moral agency will be there, so the seeds of potential wrong choices will be there as, as well. Not, Isaiah chapter 19, and uh, we, let's pick it up here in verse uh, 22. We find verse 22, and the Lord will strike Egypt. Why will he need to strike it? Because it appears that there a spanking, you might say, will be needed. We read, I think earlier, if nations do not come up to Jerusalem to keep the feast, they'll receive no rain. So this, there's this potential that's always there in the millennium for rebellion. And God will, will, will work with peoples to, uh, to, if necessary, give them a, you might say, a spanking. But there's something more. There's something more. As we are approaching the home stretch, will complacency set in for some people more broadly? Will some forget where things were back in year one? You see, that's the problem with prosperity. Now, history gives us some amazing stories of how easily mankind can forget, even in the midst of, of blessings and God's help and God's involvement. You think about the think about Adam and Eve. Here they had the most beautiful environment possible, and yet all that prosperity, everything they had, and they still turned their backs on God. You know, think about halfway through the Exodus as we read all that God did. 
He brought them through the Red Sea after breaking the hold that Egypt had on them. And with all the miracles that were done, you might say halfway through the Exodus, they still wanted to turn back. And we we read about that. And it's happened even in our generation, hasn't it? Because when we were prosperous, and I can remember growing up in the the church, as I mentioned early on, where Wisconsin Dells, there were, I don't know, 11,000, 12,000 people. It seems like, if I remember correctly, we had, uh, I mean, it was so dramatic when you go to the feast. I had the opportunity to play in the, in the feast orchestra, and we would play, and, um, and you'd have, when you'd have nine, 10,000 people, 11,000 people singing, and you'd be playing, uh, you'd, it was, it was just, uh, you'd, the hair would go up on the back of your head. It was magnificent. I mean, it was just magnificent. It's not very magnificent today, is it? What happened? Sometimes complacency and prosperity brings a sense of forgetfulness. As long as there is human nature, there is the potential, the fertile ground, you might say, for evil to flourish. All this missing is the seed or the spark. And that's a warning that we'll be giving during these days as well. Even though the system is in place, that I've described just very briefly, even though the system is in place, there's going to come a time when we're going to be preaching a warning. You think, what? What are you talking about? Let's go to Revelation chapter 20. You see, because we know the end of the story. And we'll be actually teaching the end of the story. We're going to be prophesying, you might say. We're going to be, and through those who are then coaching and teaching physically, there's going to be a message, you better believe, that's going to be going out as we approach the end of the millennium. It's going to be a warning that this complacency can lead to disaster. Revelation chapter 20, we read verse 7. When the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. So as we pass, you might say, that halfway home mark, and we're in the home stretch, a big part of what we'll be doing is saying, folks, listen, listen, don't forget where this all came from. This system that is established can be destroyed by a person, an individual, a spirit being who is more influential than you can imagine. Doesn't that happen to us? We get prosperous. We get feeling pretty good about ourselves. And that's when we're vulnerable because we just forget how powerful Satan is. And we, we're going about our way, you might, as they say, fat, dumb, and happy. <laughs> and suddenly, we find ourselves upside down and we say, how did this happen? And we realize, wow, what have I done? What have I, how have I gotten into this mindset, into this attitude, into this bitterness, into this sense of rebellion or antagonism or hostility or whatever it might be? We say, how did I get here? And we, we take a step back, hopefully... And, and God, as he humbles us then, we say, I apologize. I'm sorry. Ask for your forgiveness. Help clean me up. But this is the message that we're going to be teaching to those here because we know what's coming. We know what's coming. The lesson of history is that it's not man's hand. It's not man's government, it's not man's system of government that brings prosperity and peace. Isaiah chapter 41 has this very very pithy statement. Isaiah 41. You see, in Isaiah 41, as we, as we round the corner, head for home, warning about this being who will come and can deceive, even if you don't, you don't think you could be deceived, even if you don't think you could be, you could be turned aside, there's a being who is more powerful than you and I physically without God's help, 
And with his help, we need his help in order to, in order to defend ourselves against him. We need God's help, I should say. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 19, breaking into it, he says, I will plant in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia tree. It's this millennial picture here, verse 19, the myrtle and the oil tree. I will set in the desert the cypress tree and the pine and the box tree together, that they may see and know, that's talking about the nations that we break into this whole section, the glory of the Holy One of Israel is broken up earlier and, and, uh, and, and on. Verse 20, though, again, that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. So the message will be, the message will be, look, don't mistake your own skill that you developed. Don't mistake the beautiful cities that you've built. Don't mistake this prosperous economic system that is genius with the way that that uh, land is returned to families. And after generations of doing this, there will be this very very workable, very familiar pattern of, build, of planting trees and building houses for generations to come because you know that it will stay in your family. And ways of dealing with other people as they come down to Jerusalem. You think about even the tithing system, how it actually encourages interstate commerce, so to speak, because people travel and they'll, they'll get together, they'll see people from other areas. And they'll see people from international areas who will be coming together not to fight or to argue about issues, but to keep God's feast days together. What a glue to hold nations and peoples together. The keeping of the feasts to God. That's what will be the, the culture, the atmosphere. But don't forget who provided this. Who blesses this, we will be saying. Don't forget the one who made this all possible. He says, this will all be there that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. And the Holy One of Israel has created it. And done all this, when we reach this point, as we approach the end, as we turn down the home stretch has done all this not just for you and for me, but for all of humanity. And not just even for those who live at this time, at year 798 into the millennium. Not just for them either, but for all of humanity. And see, this brings us to the answer that I ask at the beginning of the sermon. Because I ask, what is the ultimate purpose of this millennial Sabbath rest? Is it just to establish a system? Is it just for Christ to return to this earth and to change us into spirit beings? What's the ultimate purpose? It's very simple, and that's this. To prepare for the next phase in God's plan. That's the way God works. He builds to the next phase. And you know... We're going to need lots and lots and lots of help for the next phase of God's plan. We're going to need to train a lot of people to help to deal with that final episode of mankind, that great white throne judgment period that we learn about here just in a couple of days. You know, according to the best estimates that I can find, over the course of human history, about 100 billion people have lived. Now, that's the figure that floats, floats around. Okay? A hundred billion people have lived over the course of history. Now, let's just think about that in terms of how many people we'll need to train during this, this period. What would you say would be a good number of people that we can train during the millennium to prepare for those hundred billion people? Let's say we have roughly 200 people here between what's in the audience and what's on the phone line, about 200 people. Let's just say about 200 people. If we train 500 million people during the millennium, 500 million people, then each of those people that are trained will then be responsible for 200 people. 500 million people is a lot of people to train. Let's go to the other extreme. Let's go to the other extreme. If we only train 10,000 people during the millennium to be able to work with 
people in the great white throne judgment period that will come up during that time. That means each person, again, if we only train 10,000 people, each person will be responsible for 10 million people. That seems like an awful lot to handle, wouldn't you say? In other words, one person responsible for all of New York metro area. I think that might be a bit much. So we have a lot of people to train if, in the great white throne judgment, those people are going to learn. And isn't that the purpose, ultimately, of the millennium? To establish a launch pad, you might say. To establish a culture. To establish logistically the system to be able to welcome these 100 billion people to this beautiful place called God's Garden of Eden on planet Earth. We didn't just come to the feast to make it to the feast. You know, when you packed your car and you, you know, you, you arrive here sometimes trying to just close everything down. You know, when <clears throat> it seems like over the years for us sometimes it's just trying to make sure everything's in place so you can be able to drive away and hope you didn't forget anything. And you, you make it to the feast and we're here. But if, if that's all it is then, and we're just recovering from making it to the feast during the feast, then it's not much of a feast, is it? We have to be able to take a step back, take a deep, deep breath, and be able to learn from what the feast is all about. And, and then when we do, we, we learn the feast to honor God, and we build bonds of brotherhood with each other. And we develop these bonds with the rest of the team with whom we're going to be working for really the rest of time, but particularly in the millennium. So we, we learn to develop these, these bonds, and we get to know each other here. We learn to focus on God's will, and we learn more, and we, fo- we, we think more about God's plan for the future, a plan that will yield stability and wisdom and knowledge and understanding by the one who created all systems. Systems of physics, systems of science, systems of economy, systems of interactions between people. So we learn about these things, and we learn to prepare to teach others during the millennium. Because the purpose of the millennium will be ultimately to prepare for that next step that we're approaching symbolically here just in a couple of days, but at this point in the millennium, it's coming fast. It's right in front of us. There will be a sense of urgency, a sense of warning, as I mentioned, but also a sense of urgency for those people as we say, look what's coming. You have an opportunity to help hundreds and thousands of people to be able to understand God's way. The purpose of the millennium, then, is to prepare, to prepare a kingdom, to clothe, house, feed, train, all that, ultimately, 100 billion people or more, God's way of life. In an atmosphere of plenty. In an atmosphere of prosperity. In an atmosphere of peace. What a future. What a future and what a hope.